Hello and welcome to the Fellowship Phase, an Adventures in Middle Earth podcast. I'm Josh and that's Callum. We're going to give you inside information on how to find your own path through Tolkien's world. The threat of the shadow weighs upon the hearts of most inhabitants of Middle-earth. There have been three ages in the west of the world, and in that time many defeats and many fruitless victories. Sauron, the Dark Lord, seeks to dominate all, but the shadow does not rely solely upon instruments of war. Devious deeds and hidden plots are rife. Stronger still, are the temptations that dwell in the heart. Temptations that even the bravest may succumb to. Dot, dot, dot. Hello, everyone. Hello, Callum, and welcome back, James. Thank you. Great to be back. I already feel anxious about what we're going to talk about. Callum, your introduction has set the tone. Yes, I hope it wasn't too much of an, an anguish uh, having the dot, dot, dot critical role reference in there. An excellent episode of Critical Role. In two words, let's split it between you. In two words, sum up what this episode is going to be about. We're going to start with Callum and it's going to be seamless. Callum and then James, what is the episode about? Shadow. Duh. I was looking for shadow lore, but that's good. It, oh, it felt esoteric and abstract. <laughs> good. I thought we were going for the shadow. I was like, oh, I guess I'm not saying shadow. I'm going to just say the then. So we're going to talk about the shadow and specifically shadow lore, which yes. is the mechanic in AIM. This is something that sets the game apart from kind of vanilla 5e, I think is fair to say. Is it worth starting just with a bit about what the shadow, which is quite an abstract concept, is in Tolkien and then why the game designers put it kind of at the heart of these rules? Okay. I don't count from Loremaster's point of I'm view, gonna, the shadow. I'm going to go for Nominate contestant James. Ah, what is the shadow? And why He's... is it important to Tolkien? Why is it important to Tolkien? Just, just asking the easy questions. You've got 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and do I? <laughs> so, to me, there is this central core to Tolkien's work that is this awareness of bad things happen in the world. It's not, it's sometimes portrayed as this purely, there are good guys and there are bad guys. And the good guys beat the bad guys, and it's all neat and simple and tidy. That's not actually how things work in Middle Earth. There is a clear sense of what good is and what evil is, but people remain complicated. And there is this sense of the possibility of corruption, of, of not just a failure of ability, but a failure of will and a failure of conscience that uh, uh, continually is a present throughout, uh, well, throughout all Lord of the Rings. The Hobbit is a bit more complicated because of the different editions and yeah. there, is a, there is a shift that occurs uh, in 
the addition uh, that changes the backstory for how Bilbo obtains the ring from Gollum, which I think is a very interesting example almost of textual corruption in a weird kind of way. Sorry, I'm getting very English nerd here. No, no, I haven't said anything because I'm absolutely loving this. <laughs> but that there is this sense of what we thought was this very simple story actually had this deeper hidden aspect to it. Of course, Tolkien only came up with that later, but he very cleverly reworked the original version to be the sanitized version that Bilbo told other people. So, and Bilbo is a hero. Bilbo is, I mean, certainly not flawless in The Hobbit, but he is your plucky adventurer type who get, gets over his fear of, you know, the unpredictable uh, quality of adventuring life. But no less than Thorin, who uh, succumbs to dragon sickness yeah. for the wealth of the Horde uh, in Erebor, Bilbo begins to succumb to the effect of the ring. So the shadow, as Callum's introduction suggests, is not just about orcs and Nazgul and creepy things that go bump in the night. It's also about the shadow on our hearts or of our hearts. You know, it's this uh, constant challenge to try and be up selves and the things that pull us away from that. It's you know, Boromir is, I think, the example yes. I always think of. I'm sure most people think of because Boromir is a hero, but it's not. But he, his desperation to be a hero, to save his city, turns him towards darkness. He and his story is. I think the example we should use when we talk about the shadow rules, because they can be a bit tricky to get your head around how the game designers have taken Tolkien's vision of shadow and put it into a system. But I think perhaps more than, perhaps more than any other part of the game, this is done so well, I think. That's an interesting question. I think you're right. And I think Borum is a great example. And actually if, if I, I really want to hear your thoughts in a second as a lawmaster about shadow in the game. But talking about Boromir, I, for work, got an opportunity to write about 20 years since The Fellowship of the Ring came out. And I was thinking a lot about watching it as a child and reading the book as a child and the bits I enjoyed, the adventure. And now that I'm older and looking back on the films and the book how much more I enjoy Boromir as a character because I think the idea of his flaw and the shadow in his heart, when you're a child, like he, he, he comes across, I think almost like a slightly like a minor villain at the end. As a kid, I was just like, oh, he's not as heroic as Aragorn. Whereas now he is certainly in the first book and the first film, the character that I like love watching the most. He's the character that inspired Halmir, who's the character I've played mostly throughout this um, campaign so I was doing a bit of writing about the anniversary of the film and it really got me thinking it's ties with the shadow is have you ever seen Peter Jackson's World War II in colour They Shall Not Grow Old which he did which was released at Christmas a few years ago it was he pulled together loads of footage from the First World War colourised it into a film which had narration and uh, it was a real passion project for him it really moving 
scenes from the trenches and also the soldiers when they get home. And it it was only really then that I really thought about how Tolkien had been one of these soldiers, like he was of that generation who had gone to war and had seen some of the things that are depicted in the film, which like as kids, we would never have understood. And there's a bit at the, the end of the film where they're reading diaries of some of the people who've come back from war. And they talk about how they found it really difficult to return to normal life because for people who were at home, they didn't see the trenches. They, their life didn't change that much in, a, in the same way as the people who went to France. And there are loads of diaries and he reads through all these entries of them saying they, the thing they struggle with most was just trying to like be normal and like that no one understood what they'd seen. And I think it's really echoed at the end of Return of the King when they return to the Shire and the idea that for the Hobbits, that they are the soldiers who've gone abroad and then come home and, you know, at home in Hobbiton, everything's the same. But Sam and Frodo, Merry and Pippin struggle to communicate what they've experienced. And this is a long way of saying, I think that that is what the shadow is, is the, the, the dark parts of things that happen in the world. And like you say, not just villains and enemies and orcs and goblins but that like darker part of humanity that once the characters see it they and they know it's out there in the world it's hard to then return to this kind of idyllic shire life i guess so that's kind of what i think about this is might just be nonsense but it's just come to my head that everything casts a shadow so all objects all people all places there's there's shadow there and you can bring a light and and try and just get rid of the shadow and and drive it back, but at the end of the day, there will still be some shadow, no no heart, no matter how bright the light is. And that shadow is, you know, every character in all the books. You know, nobody is completely flawless. Even Aragorn, even Galadriel, are tempted by the ring and and resist it. So. It's this pervasive evil in the world. And it's, I guess, part to like go super, you know, and James knows a lot more about this than me, but my understanding is that, you know, in the, at the beginning, when the Valor first are come into the world and Morgoth corrupts so much stuff and there's all these un, unnamed things and evil has worked into the North. And, you know, there's this pervasiveness about Morgoth, the first Dark Lord's work in the world that means it touches everything and the shadow is always there. And Sauron's coming much later on and, you know, we're joining the story much, much later on, but that, that is still there. Does that make sense? Absolutely. There are two phrases I think about, uh, again, from this perspective, not of the, the, the shadow as, as, you know, a super villain, as, you know, as a big bad, uh, but what, what the shadow, I feel like, really means for Tolkien in a more existential way, which is one, the discussion, you know, Frodo's experience is the idea of wounds that will never fully heal. His encounter on Weathertop, being stabbed by the Witch King, and then also being uh, poisoned by Shelob uh, are things that will stay with him and which eventually lead him to depart Middle-earth and go to... Uh, Valinor. So wounds that will never fully heal. The other thing I think about, in some ways these are, I think, opposite sides of the same coin. Uh, When Galadriel talks about the long defeat and the idea that however hard 
the free people try, you know, how many victories the free people win, things just are always continually slightly diminished. The elves leave. Uh, everything fades. There is a flaw in the world uh, because of uh, because of Morgoth, because which I guess you could see is somewhat analogical to uh, the fall in classic Christian mythology. But that th- there is this thing that happened at the beginning that means that the world is broken in some way uh, that cannot be fixed by you know, picking up a magic sword and stabbing the stabbing a bad guy yeah wow it's it's is it a complex concept and as a game designer i think if the you know i imagine coming in and being like we're going to make adventures middle earth we're going to make a role-playing game set in lord of the rings and I think there are other games that I've seen, like uh, the, the older role-playing games, and I don't think they really address this in the same way that they have managed to do here to, to bring that complex concept, to boil it down into a series of rules that then influence player behavior. And I guess, you know, as we were talking about in an earlier episode, you, you, you kind of want to, how did you put it, Josh? You put it very well. Design the game to reward behavior in players that you that you want to yeah. see. Is, is that yeah, is that exactly? And I think in this case, finding a way to represent the shadow in the game so that it is part of our role play in terms of it's how our characters see the world, it's how we make decisions about the way we act, the way we prioritize our goals, where we go, how we do things. I think as a game designer what you would be looking to do is be like okay i want them to think about the shadow when they make their decisions so that's that's part of tolkien's world so i want it to be part of their experience as players how can i make sure when they're making decisions they're thinking about the shadow and to do that you basically want to reward or i suppose in the flip side punish but there's a bit of both the way that people do that based on the shadow and there's mm. i think quite an elegant structure of rules which will run through of how when we make decisions uh, and how particularly as an adventuring party when we are often more in touch with the shadow than perhaps the common folk of middle earth might be what effect lingering effect that has on us and how far we are maybe willing to to go so i think first perhaps if we talk about shadow lore as a start which is one of the new ability another uh, one new skills excuse me that's introduced into the game and which has become really important and which is good that we've got james here because it is pretty central to what torvald is doing so i've got the rules here on shadow lore a dark branch of knowledge is an intelligence-based skill and shadow lore checks allow you to share what you've learned about the ways of the enemy and the various creatures that stalk through the shadows of middle earth where lore, which is another new skill, which I don't think we've really talked about before, deals with the past. Shadow lore deals with the present and the rising threat of the enemy's many minions. And I guess if you were to encapsulate into a person, Saruman is your is your shadow lore expert. He is the person in Middle Earth, and 
I guess we were in the last episode talking about Torvald and him learning the black speech and gaining four shadow points. You know, how many shadow points did Saruman gain doing all these study into the, the machinations of the of the enemy? You know, maybe that's what led to his fall. Yeah, I, I think there's a very interesting conversations to be had about Saruman uh, as a character in the Lord of the Rings and the, the Tolkien's work uh, more broadly, all the background that exists around that so we did have a brief encounter with Saruman at one point in the game which happened in a very shadowy place it's kind of interesting that uh, he is I think a very I think in some ways very well deployed by Callum in the sense that he did come in somewhat as uh, the cavalry classic mode bailed us out of a sticky situation uh, literally in Torvald's case had actually fallen into a, a pool of probably not very nice I don't know goo and so we were relieved and we were relieved as players and obviously the characters were, were, were extraordinarily relieved but there is something unsettling I, obviously we know that's Saruman has an ability that makes him, as we've discussed, I think, in was it the previous session of the game, Cam, or the one before? Because yeah, I think there was a, a mismatch, and like you know, people were like, "Oh, well, Saruman wasn't that nice," but they actually, you, everyone, there's a there's a thing in the rules about Saruman. His voice is so charming that you always come away from thinking he was amazing, the best person I've ever met. So as as the characters would just see that, absolutely, but as players, not because we know who Saruman is, but also just because we know that his this guy who comes in and seems to just know more about all this dark lore that there is this risk of becoming uh, consumed by it in some way of the, sort of all the good parts of yourself being turned towards the most malicious potentialities shadow lore is a really useful check um to have and James deploys it very well as Torvald. So, you know, so, maybe how can, can we discuss about, about how it's used and how it works in the game? So one thing we did not talk about in the previous episode is one of the base uh, scholar abilities, which is the path of wisdom. At second level, choose either medicine and one skill proficiency or medicine and proficiency with herbalism kit. Your proficiency bonus is doubled for any ability checks that use either of your choices. It is, in other words, a version of expertise mm -hmm. from D&D 5e. Uh, and, then, and then it says, whenever you gain a new skill proficiency, you may move your double proficiency bonus to the new skill, which I did when I got Shadow Law, because as Callum pointed out, it is so useful to uh, understanding what you're up against in any encounter with the enemy, with a capital E. And so what it means for Torvald is that by far his highest skill uh, modifier is Shadow Law. And it means he can reach, mechanically speaking, those high DCs much more easily. He only has to roll a 14 to hit a 25. He can reach 30 or 31 with a natural 20. And that means... Yeah, which you've done. Which I have done, done at least once, it... maybe twice. Yeah, which means that there is again thinking about you know, 
obviously this episode is not about Tord, and we talked about Tord plenty on the previous episode. And uh, we're going to go for three hours this Tordles? time, guys. No. Um, <laughs> uh, but it, it means that he gets to fulfill that role role of figuring out what's going on what is the enemy's plan which is something they is very important in lord of the rings is there's a lot that depends on anticipating what Sauron's doing what salmon's doing understanding that what salmon is doing is not necessarily what Sauron thinks he is or should be doing and understanding that the shadow is is destructive towards life and light but it is also destructive towards itself because that is its nature mm. which we took advantage of in Gundabat. or i don't know if we did it deliberately but it ended up happening anyway we did rather set the shadow against itself here's a question for you then um we've got here the law master who obviously oversees the delivery of any shadow law and in total the character who is the person who is best at it what would be an example for a new lore master of when you would ask for a shadow role, uh, sorry, a shadow lore role instead of just an intelligence check or instead of a lore role? What would be an example of something that you would require this as the skill? It's a question for you both. I mean, the one that comes to mind only because I was rereading Torwood's journal in preparation for the previous session is Which when is thing to do. we... <laughs> Yes, I, I came, did my reading, I came prepared. Earlier, you see, I had already uh, set in place plans <laughs> for this exact moment. <laughs> oh, well played. Well, you're level 13 I already. I just happened to have these fireworks. Whoa. No. Um, <laughs> when we first went to uh, the Gladden Fields in the shadow of the Dwimmerhorn, we found some orcs. And we defeated them, and they had markings on them. Yeah. And that was one an early Shadow Lord check I remember very distinctly because that gave us uh, some information, not complete information, but a bit of information about what kinds of groups of orcs we were dealing with. What we specifically learned, I think, is that they weren't local. Is my recollection. Yeah. And in fact, mm. there might be more than one group. And mm. so while we as players might surmise that as characters, suddenly we came to a realization that there was this is more than just a, a raiding party or something like that, that there was this wider scheme of foot. And that, that was built all part of the build up to this first big story arc that we had in the game that, that, that raised the stakes. I think what you did very well was not like, oh, well, this means that, this means that, you have the full picture. It wasn't like that. It was very much like, well, th there was hints, I think, towards the, the complexities behind the, the initial discovery. I don't know if that summons up anything for you, Callum. Yeah, the Gladden feels, is, I love doing that bit because it's in, in the game, very close to the Anduin Vale where you were spending a lot of time. And we know from the lore that that's where um, Isildur and um, many of his company, his sons, you know, a lot of these um, men of, of uh, Arnor uh, were killed um, at the Battle of the Gladden Fields. And that's, you know, known. And so you, you're left wondering, well, what's around there? You know, if someone was to be really good at shadow lore, they might think that the ring might have ended up there. 
which it did, and Gollum found it in the river, or Smeagol, I guess, or, or Beagle found it, and then Smeagol took it, I guess. So, you know, there, there's stuff going on there, and it would make sense that you can you can build an adventure around that, and Saruman might turn up, and what other artifacts are lurking in the water uh, in the in the things that are old Numenorean things. Uh, that's not really about Shadow Lore, but I... Um, I, I just really enjoyed running that section of the game. So what was the question? For a new... <laughs> <laughs> this is why you're here. Your enthusiasm is important. The question was, speaking to a new lore master, and they're wondering, you know, when am I asking for these checks? What would be an example of oh, something yeah. that someone would ask for a shadow lore check rather than a lore check? What's up with these yeah, orbs? I think it's... <laughs> yeah, I think I actually think this one's fairly straightforward. The one I struggle with is like, when is it traditions? When is it history? When is it uh, lore? Like that, that there's 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 overlap there. I think shadow lore is anything that I can relatably think this is to do with the enemy. Then it will be shadow lore. And I also am a bit lenient in terms of like, so say someone is investigating a scene, I'll I'll, I'll try, and I'm getting better at this. I think is offer alternatives. Or say to players, you know, what skill check do you think is relevant here? And then allow people to try and justify it. Because I think that's, you know, people will, characters will approach situations in different ways. Uh, there is the classic debates of, say, investigation versus perception checks, uh, which we won't get into. But, you know, there, there, is a, there is an argument to say, like, well, if this could be Shadow Lord, and it probably that is relevant, but it could also be an investigation check or it probably could be a history check. And you might get, I'll give you a different answer based on which check you use. I'm trying to think if there was any time where I was like, can I shadow law check this? And you, no, I wouldn't say it like that, obviously. <laughs> but if it was clear that... that Inside check. Yeah, I totally <laughs> sometimes say it like that. We all do that. Though. I'm just trying to think if there's a time when I have wanted to pursue that line of inquiry and you've shut it down i can't that i can't really think of one there are times again perception versus investigation is a classic one where other things have come up but i think it's always been fairly clear i guess maybe i don't think it came up i i guess maybe with some factions of of men who are not good that might, but maybe if they're oh, not yeah. directly servants of evil, like yeah. obviously if it's like the Corsairs of Umbar, then yes, probably some amount of Shadow Law might be relevant. If it's like some of those rubbish uh, Lake Town uh, criminals we occasionally run into, and you know, honestly, they're more scared of us than we are of them, <laughs> then I don't know if Shadow Law is particularly relevant in that situation. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point to say. Actually, where does the where does something stop or start being shadowy? Because as we've we've already said, the shadow can affect everybody. And you know, are you just a slightly dishonest merchant, or are you, you know, Nazgul? So there's, there's a line all, somewhere between those two. Cheese merchants. <laughs> no. Blessed are the cheese makers. <laughs> we just can leave this hanging. We're not going to give any context to the mysterious cheese merchants. Way nope. better if we give. No, nope, let's move on. So, so I feel like we've gone a depth into shadow lore. There, should we move on to talking about the the shadow points? Or is there anything else we want to say about shadow? Lore? Before we wrap up, just something because Stuart touched on this when he was talking about Runin, was one of Runin's abilities as a wanderer is he gets a bonus to fighting against shadowy enemies, but 
there's sometimes a question of when he's fighting something in the wilderness, if it is something that's just scary or whether it's something that's actually malign in some way. So for instance, we fought wolves before, which are wild, wild animals. And I think he'd asked, are these shadowy creatures? And I got the sense a few times he'd ask questions and it gave you pause for thought of actually, are these wolves shadowy or are they, they're just an environmental danger? But then what if they were wargs or what if, that's a werewolf or what if they're giant bats that's another time that shadow lore i wonder if that kind of question rolls yeah. in there and i i also wonder if it comes down to motivations as well so you could have a wolf that is just out hunting and and looking for food but later on you know sometime later that wolf could come under the effect yes. of a warg you know, was leading the tribe. And then, you know, what is its intentions, its motivations? And that's generally what I'm thinking about when it comes down to that. You know, I guess there's some creatures that are so bent and and uh, twisted by the, the shadow, like orcs, for example. I don't think they would ever not be shadowy, but, you know, if it's a creature, terrible... I'm trying to think what James is smiling so, about. So many things. <laughs> I was thinking, one, we just, we can't get into whether orcs are inherently evil, uh, <laughs> you just okay. can't go there. Yes, that's a tricky no, you, no, that, that's that. You weren't going there. That was me. I I summoned that particular spectre. Uh, the other thing I was thinking when you just said talking about the wolf's motivation, I was just thinking about the bit in Galaxy Quest where <laughs> Tim Allen is fighting the rock monster, and the advice to Alaric's <laughs> character is is try and understand what it wants, what's its motivation, as a joke on like this is how an actor would approach this problem of trying to understand the motivation. Oh. Sorry, I've com- <laughs> excellent completely, film. I uh, best Star Trek film. I think not entirely irrelevant to the question of shadow and uh, you know the way Tolkien uses the word black, um, which I think I think this is not what this meeting is meeting. This is not what this <laughs> very official, very official. This is not what this uh, episode is about. I think. It, how we should note that that's a thing there and it's worth talking about even if we're not yes. getting into it now because yes. we're talking we... about the game and how the game works and how the game uses Tolkien's ideas we're not talking about the cultural placement of those ideas you know it is is clearly an issue and it's something that we need to talk about and be conscious about and I guess it's one of those things as well that we can't just place in a little box and say like this is the episode about that uh, so I think that's something that we'll touch on as we go through talking about Tolkien's world because it's a pervasive issue and it's obviously very important. Indeed. Let's talk about shadow points. Yes. Let's talk about shadow points. Yes. Or what, what's it called? It's called the shadow in the rules. So maybe I can just explain, just lay out the rules quickly and then we can discuss yes. them. What are the mechanics? How does this work from the rule book? Okay. So there, there is a system in the game where characters can accrue shadow points. Ooh, points. Points means prizes. No. <laughs> In this situation, <laughs> points are bad. Amazing. Right? So there are things called sources of corruption, which lead to adventures accumulating shadow points. And it's an abstract way of representing the growing burden of grief, doubt, a weariness, self-interest that comes into their hearts. And... They can, there's four ways in which heroes risk gaining shadow points. One is experiencing distressing events, which is known as anguish, hence the pun at the beginning of the podcast, which is bad. 
the second is crossing or dwelling in an area tainted by manifestations of the shadow. That's blighted places. Third is committing despicable or dishonorable deeds, um, regardless of the end they sought to achieve. So, um, you know, in Curse of Strad yesterday, I, I think um, my character did something that was a bit bad, but for a good reason. And that's fine. But in uh, Adventures of Middle Earth, you could do that, but you probably will get shadow points for doing bad things. That's called misdeeds. And the last one is taking possession of cursed or tainted items of treasure, tainted treasure. So anguish, blighted places, misdeeds, tainted treasure. Treasure. Some examples to go along with these four things. Yes. So anguish is things we see. We often find this with journey events. Something, there'll be a sort of traumatic or evil sight that we'll see, and it will result in us needing to make a corruption saving throw, which is another new mechanic that's been finessed on is there's a it's effectively a wisdom saving throw but you can be proficient in corruption saving throws so it actually exists as a, a separate stat um, and that's kind of about partly how hardy you are and how resilient you are about seeing potentially shadowy events blighted lands is is quite clear really isn't it there are on the map and this is something that really fits in with wanderers like with runin on the map there are areas that are simply blighted because of what goes on there and the lore uh, misdeeds is the one i wanted to touch on because it's probably the most role play linked one it's the one that we as players are most likely to trigger and i did trigger it early on as i was halmir who's the character i'm playing now uh, Halmir started the game with a lot of shadow points because he was uh, kidnapped by orcs and spent a long period of time at the Dwimmerhorn, which is this fortress we've talked about. And actually part of the Dwimmerhorn quest was he got rescued. He was very tainted by the shadow and he had a lot of shadow points as I started playing him. One of the early quests he went on was with a dwarf. Um, we crossed Mirkwood. Halmir was still kind of struggling with everything that had happened. He didn't have any money. He was in a foreign place. He didn't really know what was going on. And he'd had a bit of a tiff with this dwarf. And just as we were finishing our business with him in a, a pub in Lake Town, I believe, Halmir actually pulled a knife on the dwarf and demanded more money, which is not a very Tolkien thing to do. It's not a very heroic thing to do. I, I kind of was in two minds about it, but I, I felt that Halmir had a lot of shadow points and was in a dark place and it made sense but that you said Callum was a misdeed and he got shadow points for for doing that I remember the time you were you were a bit upset I think because you did it in a very uh, you know in character moment and then I was like it, it can you said the word punishment earlier on and this is a tricky yes. thing with, with misdeeds is it it sometimes feels to me like I you know you role play your character you do all and then I'm like bad you know, it, it does feel like you've done a misdeed, you've been naughty, you know, here's some shadow points. Uh, and I think maybe a, a way, not around that, but to just make it clear to a player that, and I, I've, I hope I've managed to do this more, is say, are you sure you want to do that? That will be counting as a misdeed or something along those lines. So signposting yes, to people. But, you know, and, and, and most of the time people were still like, yeah, I think this is what they would do for x y or z but we've started talking about misdeeds maybe we'll just spell out what the misdeeds yes. are so 
if you have an accidental misdeed, so you know, like you swing your arm, oops, sorry, I cut, you know, Delilah's throat. <laughs> you know, that's that specific example. I don't, example <laughs> I don't know what that was. Anyway, if it's an accident, no shadow gain. If you do a violent fret, which is really interesting because there's, there's a line there, you gain one shadow point. If you lie purposely, subtly manipulate the will of others. Very Kantian. Points. Sorry. It is actually. Uh, cowardice, theft, and blunder, three points. <laughs> I'm sorry, blunder. <laughs> blunder with a P. Blunder. 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 I was like, how is that? That was a blunder. <laughs> that was a plunder blunder. Which actually, uh, uh, we'll maybe finish re- reading through them and we'll come back to plunder because yes. there was a, there's yeah, a, reading this, I'm like, there's a thing we need to talk about. Uh, unprovoked aggression, abusing own authority to influence or dominate, four points. And drum roll, please. Worst of all, expulsion from high... No, that's a different thing. Um, torment and torture. Murder. 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 Five points. Which is, is funny is that you just go up a little bit. You know, murder is quite bad, isn't it? So you commit a misdeed, you get shadow gain. Plunder is an interesting one. Thoughts? The okay. cowardice theft and plunder. Because we actually had a conversation in character about or one of those conversations that's sort of in character but also sort of trying to figure out what yeah. the rules are and maybe it's one of those cases come where maybe it is appropriate to and we're very much figuring out the game at this point and, and how to play games like this more generally uh, and actually you did come in and say i don't think this would be a misdeed so you did actually come in and, and give the, the lawmaster ruling but we had this sort of half in character, half as players conversation when we defeated the troll. Yes. And found our way into the secret tomb beneath the city of the Eothed. Spoilers for that, I guess, because I think that is a part of the materials for, for Adventures of Middle Earth. And and then Callum said that you do not you think I think I think under the circumstances it wasn't plunder because we were actually now that we had opened the tomb, we had to preserve. We knew the orcs were coming back. We had to preserve yeah. the items. And I think the logic was that wasn't really plunder because that you could maybe call it an accidental misdeed in opening the tomb. But once it was opened, we had we had to make sure these things did not fall into the hands of the orcs. Was I think eventually the reasoning we landed on. But it is an interesting intersection between these specific rules from Adventures in Middle-earth that tie in with the shadow and what we expect from games like this. Yeah. But also worth interest worth noting of course that Gandalf and Bilbo re- yeah. and and uh, uh, Thorin retrieve swords from the troll horde in the Hobbit. And that's cool. Everyone's favorite uh Fellowship of the Ring uh character Tom Bombadil <laughs> yeah. uh, retrieves four uh, daggers of Numenorean make to give to the hobbits uh, from from the barrows, from the grave goods. So that it seems to be okay to take stuff from graves or troll hordes. So I guess the interesting question is, and it's not really come up, when does it become plunder? One for... Uh... The lore master to decide. I Absolutely. 
Yeah, I think you just have to just make a decision. I don't know. I'm not sure I have a system. It's just, does it feel right? Yeah. What's the vibes? 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 So that's a misdeed. Should we talk about anguish? So it's different. I'm not going to read through the whole table of anguish because that would take ages. But basically, there's uh, sources of anguish. So say something natural happens as an unexpected tragedy, you might get a point, but only if you say fail a wisdom saving throw with a one or a two, the corruption saving throw. So it's quite hard to get um, anguish uh, shadow points from that. If you witness a gruesome killing, some terrible experience, uh, if you fail the shadow point, you get uh, the corruption saving throw, you get a shadow point. If there's a harrowing experience or torment or sorcery, you get two saving uh, shadow points. God, I'm not doing this well. You get two shadow points if you fail the corruption saving throw. And finally, if you experience directly the power of the enemy, you gain one shadow point regardless of the outcome um, of your saving throw, and then you might get another two if you fail wow. the check, which is That's a hefty. free. I don't think anybody's actually failed that check. That has come up. Uh, I know Malbeth, um had to make that check, and I think he failed that, actually. So maybe he did get three shadow points in that um, situation. So anguish is, um, comes up a lot, actually. I think that that's probably the thing that I use yeah. most out of these because you're good. You don't normally use misdeeds. And I've just read through the Blighted Lands thing again and realized that I haven't been doing that. So uh, <laughs> I, I kind of take a slightly more arbitrary approach to Blighted Lands and just I, I, I prefer doing the corruption saving throws in a narrative sense. So it, it suggests rules for Blighted Lands where, you know, depending what the area is, number of... Um, uh, how often you have to make corruption saving throws. But I, I prefer to do it like there's this terrible, gruesome thing. And then I get to describe a terrible, gruesome thing, which is always fun. And then uh, you have to make a corruption saving throw. And you, oh, basically when I start making those descriptions and to put on that voice, I think everyone's eyes, I can see that they're like, oh, we're going to have to make a corruption saving throw. And maybe that's, is that true? You... We can usually see it coming. Yeah. Nice. I like that. It works. No, it's a good build up to it. It feels like it it doesn't feel again, it doesn't feel punishing to go back to what we were talking earlier. It feels like, right, yes, we have chosen to come here and this is the consequence. Because there is a suggested thing. So on the map for the lore master, there's uh, difficulties of terrain, but there's also stuff about whether it's free lands down to wild or shadow or dark lands. And uh, when you get to Darklands, um, you make a corruption saving throw every hex you cross, which is 10 miles. That's insane. Have you? We would not cross? have made so, it. You know, it's coming up a lot. Angmar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It's Angmar no, sorry, Angmar's Shadowlands. No, Shadowlands. We would not have made it. It's only every two. We would probably not have made it through Mount Gundabad. You, had, you would have had to make two additional corruption saving throws there. I think you only made one. Uh, so, yeah, the Blighted Lands, I guess when you're doing the journeys, I think it's just, for me, it's always been something just a bit much to think about. But I guess it's maybe I'll... it might be an interesting thing to experiment with in future. Yeah, it's good to have a guide on frequency at which you should be asking people mm -hmm. to make checks and have something to justify yes. it as well. Uh, but I prefer working it in a narrative sense to just saying you've moved two hexes, make a check. Yeah, I think I think it could work, but I, I I also get what you mean. And finally, we've got tainted treasure, which I don't think uh, is quite straightforward. Depending on 
where you get the treasure for, it might be cursed and you might have to make a corruption saving throw. And there's a table in the book that gives you DCs and how many shadow points you get. So that's, I guess, how you gain shadow points. How about yes. removing shadow points? So you've got your... your Torvald, you, uh, James, you mentioned earlier on that yes. uh, Torvald had gotten a load of shadow points and you immediately removed them. How did you go about doing that? Well, we were in the middle of the fellowship phase. Hey, that's the name of the show. There we go. <laughs> Which, uh, and then the course of the fellowship phase, you, as discussed, I think, on a previous episode, you can take different undertakings. And one of these is... Uh, I don't remember what it's called off the top of my head, actually. It's called Heal uh, Corruption. And uh, you can make a roll to see whether or not you are successful in healing corruption. And if it is a really good roll, as mine was, as I recall, you can heal more corruption. So narratively, what's happening is you're spending the fellowship phase, which could be weeks, maybe months, and we've role played yes. out what people would be doing to actually try and cleanse themselves of these these this shadow that's on them. A player hero wishing to remove their corruption must make a DC 13 wisdom insight ability check. If successful, they remove two shadow points. If their ability check results in a total of 25 or more, they remove four shadow points, which is what I did. You got your insight it, proficiency from being a barding. Yes, yes, exactly. If it suits a player hero's personality, uh, the lawmaster may allow the substitution of a nullability like a charisma check with a musical instrument or strength test with blacksmithing tools. Uh, this idea that depending on your character, they might be doing different things. Mm. And then we talked about this uh, in game in relation to uh, Runin and Runin's blacksmithing, yep. I believe. Yeah, he's done um, some of that recently. Yeah, I think that uh, makes sense because you don't want. I never like it when it's a specific part of the game is locked behind having one specific proficiency or being strong in wisdom. Because then it's like, well, every character I take, then I'll just put insight on as a skill, and I'll make sure wisdom's always high. You know, having good wisdom in aim is a very good idea, by the way, because we'll come onto the the rules of shadow points and what happens when they get too high. But yeah, you don't. I think it's being flexible and allowing people to, you know. Who might to say how you uh, go about removing uh, shadow and how you relax? There is other sort of focused ways of doing it. Uh, narratively speaking, the Bjornings can take an undertaking at the Carrick, which is very important in Tolkien's lore. Um, in the middle of the, the River Anduin, the Hobbit passes by there as a, a story. Bjornings who go to the Carrick can double the speed at which they remove shadow because it mm. is a, a spiritual place of sorts for them. And what I liked about that was that when I was Theodric and I had shadow points, there was a sort of a pilgrimage you had to make and we played it. It wasn't easy. It wasn't just a hand wave like, oh, I go to the Carrick. Theodric had to, to go there and I think it was reasonably challenging to, to get there and that spending time there meant he got to make twice as many rolls to get rid of shadow points. And that felt cool because it felt for Theodric like, well, it's great when I'm here, I can remove shadow there. And I'd also thought to myself, if we end up further away from home and I get a lot of shadow, I'm going to, and this goes back to the game design, reward the behavior you want. I'm going to want to go back to the Carrick 
because they get a bonus. So it, it helped tie together the the Bjornings as, as a as a race. And I like that there are the different there are different kind of um, culture benefits. Yes, there, there's a couple other ones, but I won't tell you what they are because some of them are slightly spoilery. The only one I would mention is that it's not quite the same, but if you're in Rivendell, then your shadow points default to zero. It counts as if that you don't remove them, but they count as if they're zero. And I believe that when you're in Rivendell and you take the heal corruption undertaking, you get a similar bonus to the Carrick. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the idea. I think that the shadow doesn't really weigh on people at Rivendell, but that it doesn't go away, but it doesn't really affect them. Yeah. While it's they're brilliant. And actually for role-playing, it's really great to come in. And then I don't know if that influenced your, when you were in Rivendell recently playing characters, did that, were you thinking about that? That made that clear to everybody that you wouldn't have shadow. I think I was actually, because again, I took the same uh, undertaking initially, uh, the, which I wasn't actually sure I was going to do because I was like at a certain point, if you have enough shadow, maybe it becomes harder to quit, <laughs> as it were. But then I was like, but if you're in Rivendell, you would probably know that you need, uh, you would have that clarity by mm. being there mm. and not being affected by the shadow to know that actually, no, what I really need is to... Uh, to take care of oneself. So actually, I, I I was initially thinking I would roll a a wisdom check of some kind to see whether or not I'd actually take the undertaking or whether I'd ignore the problem. But then once I was in Rivendell, when you're like, well, you're acting as if you have no shadow points, and I was like, oh, I was gonna I was going to treat the number of shadow points I had as the DC or the, for the wisdom check or something. I was like, well, the DC is effectively zero then. <laughs> I love how you, you thought that I was so much detail. Um, yes, I, there was a, there was a quite a convoluted yeah. thought process there. It's quite useful as a as a system because I think it does help with role playing as you get more shadow points. People lean into it, so you can remove shadow points. We should talk about the miserable condition and just spell out how these rules works. And maybe maybe I'll I'll do that. I was I going to I've say probably. No, I was just going to say. Oh yeah, that there is another way of losing shadow points. Which well, is. that's yes, that is a sort of nuclear <laughs> option of, of losing uh, uh, shadow points. So, what happens when you get more and more shadow points? You keep getting more shadow points, you keep plundering Bjorn's hall, you keep stealing his honey. Arr, stop it. So, if you ever get to a point where your shadow point <laughs> total exceeds your, <laughs> I don't know why I did that. your shadow point Very total good. exceeds your wisdom score, so you know. For example, Torvald had a wisdom of, what was it, 16? So if you had 17 shadow points, I don't think it's equal. I think it has to exceed. They become miserable. And what does miserable mean? So if you're miserable, you have disadvantage in attack rolls and you automatically fail all charisma ability checks, which was very important recently because... Was it Halmir became miserable at one point and then yes, tried, I became you were going to make a charisma check we and you realized that actually you were just going to fail? Yep. Which was which was key, actually. Yes, we've had two characters become miserable, I believe. Yeah, um, Halmir's miser miserable was quite recently. Misery. Yeah, you actually, can... not entirely dissimilar circumstances in some ways. In the sense of it happened while in the middle of 
really bad situation. Really bad situations. Uh, the middle of a fight or yeah. a prolonged co- encounter, conflict encounter, and in the middle of uh, a place of you know, shadow. So, so miserable is bad. You don't want to be miserable, uh, just like in real life. And uh, whilst you're miserable, you can temporarily counteract those problems by spending your inspiration to either uh, remove disadvantages on the attack roll, or if you spend inspiration, it allows you you are able to take a, a charisma check at disadvantage, which I don't, don't think I knew about or remembered. So what you're miserable. Okay, how do you get out of being miserable? How do you get rid of these shadow points? Well, you now keep track of when you roll your dice. And if you ever roll equal or less than the difference between your shadow point total and their wisdom whilst making an ability check, attack roll or saving throw, they experience a bounty of badness. So just to spell that out. So say you're Torwald and your wisdom is 16 and you've got 17 shadow points. If you ever roll a one, which is the difference, which is why it has to be higher. If you ever roll a one, you're going to have a bout of madness. Say your shadow point total was 20 and your wisdom was 16. If you ever rolled a four or less on an ability check or an attack or anything else, you would experience a bout of madness. And actually, this happens quite quickly because you're rolling with disadvantage a lot. Um, so I think in both cases, the bout of madness has come on pretty quick. You're kind of in that, in, in that, in that stage, you're you're unlikely to get to a fellowship phase and be able to yeah. take heal corruption. So you, once you've got miserable, you, you kind of want to just have the madness over and done with as soon as possible, in my opinion. I don't know how you feel about this as players. But. I, I, in a way, yes. And the mechanic is designed to spiral, that it just increases the chances that you're going to have a bout of madness. And you're right, that because the way the madness works, once it's done, it's done, and it's cleared... What we found out, though, with Halmir when we were in Gundabad is if you have a bout of madness in a very dangerous situation, you lose control of the character. And the more dangerous the situation is, you may not get them back. Yes. A, a, a bout of madness is triggered by rolling that thing. And when it happens, the player relinquishes control of their character, the lore master, for a short period of time. Um, or the lore master can choose to... Hold on. Delay. To yes. Yeah. The bout of madness until a more devastating moment. Yeah. The lore master plays out the crisis, making the character do something they will later regret. Here are some examples of the consequences of the bout of madness. Those fireworks you brought earlier on, they you set them off inside. No, that's that's not the example. Um, <laughs> so is this an actual example? <laughs> <laughs> It's like The Sims. You ever play that and you set the fireworks off inside and everyone's running around. So, for example, desperation. The hero cannot find a trace of hope in the spirit and thus cannot use inspiration until their heart is again lifted. Oh. Um, well, we could use the example of Halmir. So Halmir yeah. was in a situation where they were in Gundabad. They'd, they'd completed their mission. They'd rescued someone that they were there and they were trying to make their way out. But Halmir, one too many bad things happened and uh, he went uh, mad. Uh, and what, what happened? Maybe you can describe it. I... Well, this is something we'd actually talked about. <clears throat> and I think you slightly tailored the bout of madness to the character because we discussed this, which was that Halmir, uh, a soldier, he'd largely led this expedition to Gundabad. 
had all of them had seemed to very dark things. He'd racked up a lot of shadow points. He became miserable, and then he he failed his role. He <clears throat> had a bout of madness. I had said to you, kind of behind the scenes for quite a while, if things are getting perilous in Gundabad, because Helmer is the one who's who's brought us here, he will sacrifice himself to let the others escape. I felt that that would be, if it got so desperate, that would be in character. He was a soldier. He was a leader. He was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice if if he felt that was what was needed. And the way that you picked up the bout of madness was Halmir thought that he needed to sacrifice himself for the others to get away. The circumstance, actually, he, he didn't, but he had slightly lost grip of reality and had gone into that mode that he was already ready for. And so you said he's going to storm off down that other tunnel to um, you know, create a scene and hold off the orcs while the group escape. The, the, the losing kind of the grip thing was that the group were actually not in a position to escape and the enemies weren't really coming for them at that point. And Halme was effectively just drawing attention and risking his life. So he ran off down the tunnel towards danger and left the party to to handle. That was a tense moment. That was very, was very tense. Very tense moment. And it was, there were efforts made by other characters to, to try and snap him out of it and to restrain him. But he's, he's a strong warrior. He, he shook him off. It was only the last ditch attempt was Rudin said he would just he was just going to fire an arrow at Halmir's knee to try and knock him over or knock him down. Little did Stuart and Runin know that Halmir was so low on hit points that the arrow uh, knocked him to zero hit points. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we talked about that with contest. Stuart on an earlier episode, and uh, yes, I remember was, listening to it. It was a great moment, um, and that's I think what's good about the boat of madness and the miserable condition is that. It, it builds these really impactful story moments and, and and creates this challenge, which is within the party. And it really, I think, when we talk about Boromir as an example, you know, He's he goes example. miserable, he, he threatens Frodo, his bout of madness is trying to take the ring. But once what happens once you've had the bout of madness is that you lose all of your shadow points and you then gain something called a permanent shadow point and each point of shadow point of permanent shadow point you get uh, leads you down a path of degeneration and the degeneration is basically traits that are added to your uh, character and they're based on your shadow weakness which i think we touched on when we were talking about phaedric we haven't really talked about it since but basically all the classes have a different shadow weakness associated with them um in Halmer's case, as a man of Minas Tirith, uh, he's actually narratively from Dol Amroth, but the, the, the culture is a man of Minas Tirith. Um, Shadow Weakness is power, I believe, and the first degeneration he gets, which he now has, is he is a resentful person. And that doesn't mean that he's resentful in everything he does, but I'm trying to role-play more now in situations where he's maybe not as on board with the plan that he's slightly more resentful towards other people and perhaps what happened uh, as a result of it. How do you get the shadow? Is the shadow weakness something you choose or is it based on the culture? It's or on the class? based on your culture. 
No, no, it's based uh, on class. Is it based on the class? Based on class. Yeah, uh, I thought it was fact he's yeah, a warrior. So just to check that, so... Okay. So yeah, it's from being a warrior. Yeah, and you um, can get nice. up to four permanent shadow points, and if you get more than that, you know, for example, power, uh, lure of power, if you got four permanent shadow points, you'd be tyrannical. I feel like not for most word. of them, by the time you get four, you are essentially a, a villain. Yeah. <laughs> They well, they, they suggest if you succumb to the shadows. So if you get four shadow points, um, you you you're on the edge of succumbing. And if you get another one, then you're hopelessly lost and taken out of play. And the options are either you return to Valinor if you're an elf, or madness. Um, so you may, um, you know, may go off and you basically become an NPC and something bad happens. It's not good. I mean, uh. Uh, I would say both um, Denethor, Denethor and Saruman are also relevant yeah. here. Yes, that's a great example. And that, uh, man, I don't think certainly in the books Denethor is ever, ever quite as clear cut as a full outright villain. He remains well intentioned, he just can't trust anyone anymore. And to the extent that um, you could see him falling uh, into the category of, if you were to model it in a system, law of secrets. Which Yes, uh, I was just reading that and thinking of that same thing. He becomes haughty, you, scornful, scheming, and then treacherous. And without meaning to, he ends up betraying, essentially, the free people. Yeah. And uh, and and Saruman is similar. He probably falls into the same category, but it manifests in a different way. Uh, and if and Saruman maybe, but Denethor maybe never fully reaches full treachery. He doesn't think he's betraying Faramir by setting him on fire. He's too disconnected from reality. Yeah. Whereas Saruman is. Is actively betraying everyone up to and including Sauron. <laughs> Anybody you possibly can. Yeah, that's that's high level play shadow point stuff. I think where uh, Boromir is a perfect example because trying to take the ring, and I think why it's so satisfying as the the reader or, or the viewer, or the audience for Boromir's story is from a long way off. You know, you you kind of know what the risk is. And the risk is that Boromir will try and take the ring. And you know that as the audience, as the reader, because it is a rational thing for him to do in a way. It's his motivation to, to protect his people and his belief that the ring is the key to that makes perfect sense. And that's why I liked what we did with Helmir, which was I told you what my plan was if things went wrong. And that was the thing that you used. So to me, it didn't feel like I'd lost player agency. I didn't feel like, oh, wait, the Loremaster's just taken Helmer off to do something that he would never do. It was, there was inevitability from a long way off that this was going to happen. And it was something bad happened and it triggered it and it makes perfect sense for the character. And why I think it matters so much for Boromir is when he comes out of his bout of madness, if we were in the game, would be the mechanics. He only comes out of it really as he dies. It's, it is really his tragic death. You know, he he steps in to save the hobbits and dies, and then he has his moment with Aragorn, and that's it. And that's really all he gets coming out of 
his bout of madness. I think that's why it's got such a emotive moment. Absolutely, There's, but there is that um, the line that Aragorn has in response to what to Boromir's uh, uh, actions after uh, he threatens Frodo, where he says that few have ever won such a victory. Yeah, uh, speaking to the idea that that um, Boromir was able to by pushing past that uh, temptation by realizing the mistake that he had made and by redeeming himself uh, through trying to defend Merry and Pippin. He uh, doesn't undo what happened, but he does in some way, again, uh, receive some kind of measure of self, of, of redemption. Yeah. And he said salvation. That might be too, too far. Mm. Um, no, he's wrong. He's wrong. Um, that's the the shadow rules. There's one like small like niche thing to mention, I guess, is that the high elves of uh, Rivendell. So in the Rivendell region guide, high elves of Rivendell have a a rule which. If we ever go talk about them, it's probably we'll go into more detail. But the set by woe, uh, high elves can never truly forget the taint of the shadow once it's left a mark on their spirit. Whenever you take the undertaking heal corruption, you immediately lose one point of temporary shadow and gain one point of permanent shadow, and then make the ability check. So essentially, you if you build up lots of shadow points. You can try and get rid of them, but you're basically trading it in for permanent shadow points. You're just converting them into a yeah. Which to me, I make me think I probably would never take heal corruption. I just wait till I go mad, but that's a risk. You know, you don't know what that situation is going to be. Um, so it, I think what that is is that the high elf um, uh, culture they are more powerful. They get better benefits, which is unusual for. For this sort of game, but it's tempered by the fact that those player characters won't be around for very long if you're playing in a setting where there's a lot of shadow points coming in. They're time limited, which is which is pretty cool. It's an interesting it's way of balancing. Cool. That's very distinct. Yeah, it didn't come up when I played a high elf, which is the only person who's played one, because yes. we didn't. We just it was a we say a one shot, but it was I think five episodes in the end it's a um, kind of limited campaign yeah, yeah, we didn't really have enough to for that to have come apart okay how about the system in comparison to other rpg systems of a similar style because although shadow as a concept is very talking this mechanic appears i think in a comparable way in a number of other games that i can think of I think this is a very good example. I don't know if it is reminded either of you of a particular game. Well, it's uh, there are madness rules in the basic uh, rule set for fifth edition D and D. What I want, what, what what strikes me about those rules, and obviously certain uh, campaigns such as Curse of Strahd, you were telling us earlier, have more specific. Uh, yeah. Criteria or uh, effects. Uh, the, the 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 basic rules are exactly as they sound. That they're, they're fairly broad and generic. 
there isn't there's short-term effects there's long-term effects and then there's indefinite effects and in in sort of classic basic dnd style it's like roll a d100 and see what happens obviously what? a dungeon ma- obviously a dungeon master could be at liberty to say you get a specific effect because a specific thing happened or you, your character seems to be prone to maybe this kind of thing but ultimately these are your standard D tables is there rules where, for what triggers you to to have that madness uh, or is it just the rule the, the certain spells there? such as oh. contact other plane and symbol can cause insanity in oh. Curse of Strat, which is obviously a, a very famous uh, pre-written module, uh, which I'm currently running for our group, uh, there are numerous points in the module where things that happen tri- can, can trigger madness, specific things related to the story or to items or to events and things. So I think in the, the core rules, they're quite general. And I think it's really up to the DM or the writers of, of, of Strad, for instance, to then plonk those in somewhere where it where it makes sense but they're and not really some way to resist it. In as they're not as fleshed out as as mm. the shadow rules there's not really a kind of in and out sort of situation it, it, resisting a madness effect usually requires a wisdom or christmas saving throw is okay. as specific as it gets which is one but check is... and it's either pass and you're fine or fail and terrible thing happens whereas yeah. the aim system is cumulative you know, yes. there's there's a slow bit, and as Josh said, which I thought was actually really insightful, was that you see this coming. Uh, it's not something that is like, oh, yes. I, it's a you know sucker save sort of thing where suddenly I'm mad, you know. Whereas a minute ago I was completely sane. Precisely. No, that's exactly what I was working towards, yeah. and I agree. And yes, it just feels like it's so much more built into the characters in mm. uh, Adventures to Middle Earth than it is in it just seems like this extra thing that is impo- that happens to the characters uh in the in the yeah. base 5e rule system whereas in, in yeah in adventures it feels like it's more in line with who the characters are and whilst the way that you become miserable with the getting more shadow points in your wisdom score I think that took me a while to get my head around and hopefully we've explained that in a way that makes sense to people, but it does, it, it, it works. I would say, I think tying it to the wisdom score gives benefits, but it's not like, even if you've got wisdom of eight, which is probably the lowest that you could have, it's still, you know, you've got a decent amount of resistance to it. Over a prolonged period of time in our campaign, it didn't just come as a sort of a, flash it, it felt like it was earned it felt like it was built up over a long period of time and that oh when this happens it's because not just because i've just seen a bad thing down the corridor but because of months of long adventuring something bad mm. has happened you do what? need to get bert on to talk about isambard at some point i know yeah bert played a isambard hobbit who poor isambard didn't last very long um as a character because he got so many shadow points. He got so many shadow points. But Cur- took cursed jewelry, <laughs> misdeeds. The uh, treasure hunter sort of concept very seriously. 
yeah he's he's had three player characters and each of them have been so different and very interesting i i think um yeah there's there's a lot to stop we need to have berton and speak about his three characters and contrast them with each other almost because um and just talk about like what what journey was i think for for him as a player and me as a a lore master as well and in terms of um that collaborative story um uh, character creation yes. so what other systems do we want to talk about so we talked about the the fifth edition base madness and you know yes um again uh, it's actually a shame that but isn't here to talk about call of cthulhu which he has far more experience yeah. with than any of us do but obviously well known for having a, a madness uh mechanic where that is one way you your characters can uh lose lose i yeah i was unsure the right word was there yes but uh, as we know our experience of the game i think we can add a lot to that it's where very well thought of i think the one i know i joke about being a massive fanboy of alien um which i am the stress mechanic in free league's alien game i think is comparable and is very good mm. In short, the way it works, and the idea is to build on this concept of of horror that in uh, horrific action situation, there's an element of adrenaline and tension that can actually make you better before you lose your mind. The way it works in the game is that you roll a certain number of dice. As you become more stressed, you add extra dice into your pool. The things that stress you out are seeing terrifying things, like seeing an alien, um, one of your companions, you know, being brutally attacked, seeing some kind of unknown space horror. You add more and more dice into your pool, which you're rolling. And the dice that you add in, as long as you're rolling successes, just give you extra dice. They basically make you temporarily better. You're just looking for a six on any dice that you roll. Your pool gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. You're more likely to roll a six. But if you ever roll a one, on your their d6s they roll if you ever roll a one on your stress dice which are a different color you panic and things start to go haywire and panicking there's a table for panic much like there are um, tables for for madness can be you drop a weapon um, it can be that you run and hide it can be that you scream and effectively cause other people around you to panic it can be that you just open fire on the nearest person or enemy And I think it works really well because there's this sweet spot of having some stress dice makes you better at what you're doing, but that inevitability that you are eventually going to panic. I think it's comparable because much like in AIM, there are things you can do to deliberately reduce it. You can recover by by, um, resting in certain places and by doing various things. So it has a kind of an up and down track like AIM. It feels more nuanced than, than vanilla 5e. Um, I think it's worth mentioning because it, it's a similar structure, which I think speaks to the kind of the core of the game. It's a very different game design overall, but I think that the alien stress mechanic is is so well ingrained into the game. Yeah. It, you know, I'd say it's probably, it's not like better. It's, it's just very different game. It's a, a less complex rule system than, yeah. than AIM is. Um, and they're, they're trying to achieve different things and they both do it really well. My favorite thing, um, in the alien system is when you've built up enough stress that you start to uh, get higher on the stress table in terms of what uh, the panic table rather and then at certain 
there have been certain situations where we want, we want someone to roll like to actually roll high on the on the panic table so they get berserk and shoot the alien. Yes, yes. And then you just freeze and you're like, no. And then you just die. Um yeah, great game. Yeah. Oh, that's a great system. What is there any other um comparisons you want to draw? Well, and only because I think um, you mentioned it briefly when talking to Stuart, uh one of your episodes with Stuart, uh, which was uh sort of morality systems in video games. Yeah. Which is an interesting point of, re- uh, of reference. What I always think of is of course uh Mass Effect. Uh that's it. They, I was trying to think what the game was. Yes, when you, did you listen to you thinking he's thinking Mass Effect. Yes, that's exactly what happened. Oh, okay, because <laughs> I'm in the game. We I just had to close one. this loop, Callum. I just I was had thinking, to close this loop. I, there's a game in my head, something space. I think I said Fallout or something, which isn't space at all. But uh, uh, Fallout also um, has has or oh, some 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 Fallouts have a morality yeah. mechanic. It's Mass Mass Effect, uh, but Mass Mass Effect. He specifically said Paragon, so yeah, that is. Generally speaking, in this context, probably you were thinking Mass Effect, um, which uh, itself I think is loosely based on the sort of light side, dark side uh, meter in uh, Bioware's earlier Star Wars game, Knights of the Old Republic. Mm. The difference being that in uh, Knights of the Old Republic, and this is true of uh, I think the Fallout games that tend to have this a similar system. You you only have one total of points. You're either vert, you're either high. I'm making gestures gestures with my hands in an audio medium. Uh, you're either uh, you're either good or you're bad. If you do more good things, you go uh, more towards the good end. If you do more bad things, you go more towards the bad end. You're light side or dark side, right? Uh, the difference in Mass Effect is that they're separate meters. Uh, you you can be simu- you can simultaneously earn more Paragon and more Renegade points and increase different sets of points. What is interesting to me about uh, eventually Middle Earth in this context is there aren't light points, right? There mm. aren't. There isn't this sort of balance or this sense of we can sort of uh, quantify exactly how good you are it doesn't go in that it doesn't take in that direction i think that's i think that's right for tolkien i think it would feel very forced no pun intended to bring a star wars like sense of morality i'm just i'm just going for it (laughs) into middle earth because it actually is quite different because Star Wars is so, which is why I think a lot of these, these sort of binary morality systems come from, is is basically from, from Star Wars and video games. There is, it's very sort of Manichaean, Zoroastrian. It has this sort of archa- archaic feeling, like there is a there is a light and there is a shadow, and you could see resemblances to that in Middle Earth, but there isn't the same I think experience of that in the world Middle Earth is not a place where you know at least not since the War of Wrath in the first age where titans of good and bad fight each other Middle Earth 
by the point we're reaching the third age, again, this diminished world uh, at the end of the long defeat is a world in which uh, the, the, the Valor are long gone, the elves are leaving. By and large, it's mostly just ordinary people, not Jedi. But it wouldn't seem right to have someone who can be measured as the ultimate hero in this idealized way to me in, in middle earth some people accuse aragorn of being that but i don't think that is how aragorn comes across to me he's much more grounded in uh, ideals of kingship rather than uh, yeah. the sense of uh, moral purity yeah that distinction makes sense yeah, and even like in the lower, you know, in the fourth age, Aragorn goes off and conquers a lot of people, and you know he, the, you know, there's a, there's a sort of kingdom building thing, which if you look at it from a purely morale v- viewpoint, is you know, is that's probably questionable. Uh, Tolkien's politics is a whole other <laughs> episode. Well, that's true. Uh, he is very, is, he had very weird politics. To be clear, I, I'm not simply saying he he is as straightforward as oh, he was just very conservative he was weirder than that well maybe we need to have you back james to to, to have the uh pol- because i have to admit that i um don't know what his politics were and both love to yeah. talk more about it sometimes <laughs> well there we go there, there we go that's another episode planned uh put that in the put it in the list i feel there should be a sound effect now but i can I add one in what, what, what will the sound effect what, be what's the list sound effect It'll be a scribbling sound effect. Yes. Oh, not scribbling. I don't really like the sound of chalk on blackboard. Should we put it on the podcast and see how few people this doesn't happen? <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Will this remain in? What about a stamping noise? Stamping no- Everyone loves a stamping noise. It's very satisfying. Uh, and I feel like we're at the stage of the podcast where we're rambling and we probably should just finish. So um, I, Josh, we have discussed the shadow uh, for good and for ill in Tolkien's work and how I think we're all agreed has been translated pretty darn well into the rules of Adventures of Middle-earth. Certainly provided some pretty big character moments for us and imagine it continue to do so and Torwell being a, a specialist in shadow lore will likely be at the heart of some of those moments to come so uh, thank you for joining us James thank you for having me no emails except on party business and comments, suggestions, and questions to the fellowship phase at gmail.com. The long year turns to its close. Much we have accomplished these last seasons. Our fellowship disbands, but is not broken, and we will return on the next episode of the fellowship phase.